Hi everyone. Today we're going to talk about the macro environment and what's been a very volatile second quarter for the global bond and currency markets. I'm Brian Giuliano, part of the global fixed income team here at Brandywine Global. I'm Jack McIntyre, one of the portfolio managers on the fixed income team at Brandywine Global. So Jack, let's start by talking about the Fed uh, and the U.S. economy. Um, Trump's tax cuts have supercharged growth. Um, economic activity is solid, if not downright strong. This has allowed the Fed to continue tightening. Um, on the face of it, a, a 2% Fed funds rate still seems like we have pretty easy monetary policy, right? especially when you consider where growth is. But that might be viewing things a little too simplistically. Right? you got to think about where we've come from and where we're heading. Um, and that Fed funds rate of 2% is, is 200 basis points off the zero bound from a couple years ago. Uh, we have LIBOR that's almost doubled in the past 12 months. And by the end of this year, the Fed's balance sheet is going to be contracting by 40 to $50 billion a month. So is it possible that this recent market volatility we've seen, uh, is it a warning shot to the Fed? Uh, you know, in other words, is the Fed moving too far too fast? So in some ways, it could be a, a warning shot to the Fed. I think the bigger warning shot is the U.S. Uh, yield curve. Because look at how flat that is. And if the Fed, they've given us their roadmap. They've added that fourth rate hike based on their, their dots. I'll believe it when I see it because I think things could actually slow down a little bit to where they actually pull that back. But okay, let's say they continue to power ahead. Well, they're going to invert the yield curve. Um, so what are the, the four most dangerous words in the English language? This time is different. Well, Powell kind of suggested that he might not quite listen fully to the, the signal that the yield curve is telling us. I think I would advise him, hey, listen to the curve. It is telling you. It's telling you, hey, don't worry about inflation. Uh, or, hey, let's be a little cognizant of, of the, the growth. Okay, so yeah, you're right. Growth today does look good. Um, but we've got a lot of things out there that we need to pay attention to in terms of that might negatively impact growth. And I don't want to sound too negative. I, I, I'm not looking for a recession or anything along those lines. I just think, um, hey, the dollar has had a good move in here. It's reflected maybe a little bit better growth than actually is, might materialize. But okay, so yeah, let's think about the Fed. Where we are right now, there is ample reason for them to continue to tighten. The key is to go slowly. There's not enough inflation to get them to start powering ahead. And the last point I would make, and I think it's, it's gonna be important, at some point here in the not too distant future, the Fed's got to give us a signal that they're going to pause at, at neutral. And I'm not 100% sure what neutral is. I don't think they know exactly what neutral is. But it's higher from here, but not significantly higher. Uh, but they, they need to, to send a message they're going to pause and not just sort of power ahead and keep tightening. Because then you're going to set up for even a more risk-off environment, not just sort of in the emerging markets, but maybe even in the developed equity markets as well. And, you know, Jack, for all the good things that we can say right, going on within the U.S. economy, um, it's crazy to think that 30-year Treasury yields still yield the same thing today that they did five years ago during the taper tantrum. And, I mean, that to me says the longer end of the yield curve is questioning whether or not better growth and inflation are really in the pipeline. Yeah, so I think the longer the curve is focusing on, and we've talked about this before, the sort of structural, secular, disinflationary influences. Um, so the front end is, hey, the front end is focused on cyclical, which is, is that's the business cycle. It's, it's done better. The Fed should be tightening in here. 
But the long end is saying, hey, there's some things that um, out there that suggest that inflation is not going to get out of hand. And again, that's why it's not going to take too much more in the ter- uh, way of rate hikes for the, the curve to invert. So, Jack, you brought up the dollar a few minutes ago, and we've been in the camp that the U.S. dollar topped out back in 2016. Right? We thought pillars of support for the currency have eroded. A multi-year decline was likely. And for the better part of two years, right, we saw that that dollar came off that lofty level. That is up until about seven, eight weeks ago, and the dollars had had something of a of a resurgence. So my question is, Jack, does the recent strength of the U.S. economy and what I'm going to call an America first Fed, um, does that change our outlook on the dollar? No, it doesn't. But, you know, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't talk about, you know, as it's been a challenging environment uh, for our performance. The, the thing that we actually have gotten wrong um, is the direction of the dollar. We actually did increase some U.S. dollars in the portfolio, but not enough. And, and the reason we didn't is because we view this move in the U.S. dollar strength as counter trend. These So currencies have, and it varies, but let's say they, they can trend from three, five, seven years typically. But even within those trends, there's always counter trend moves. Nothing moves in, in a straight line. Uh, I think positioning got to be a little lopsided. And here, the currency markets decided to, to shift their focus from relative growth to relative monetary policy. So, yeah, the Fed is tightening and, and you know, tightening maybe a little bit more aggressively than they had told us uh, a few months ago. But meanwhile, you look at the ECB. Well, they're going to go slow. Draghi's going to go slow. The Bank of Japan, Kuroda, is going to go even slower. So right now, in terms of the developed markets, the the Fed is leading the charge. And okay, so the dollar's sort of reflecting that. We're seeing some uh, position unwinding. But Having said that, we're not changing our view. We view this as a multi-year downtrend. Um, valuations are still compelling. Uh, what makes this cycle a little different is the administration. Uh, I'm hard-pressed to believe that Donald Trump would want a strong dollar. Um, actually, a weaker dollar helps a lot of his efforts in terms of improving the, the trade deficit. I think uh, if the dollar strengthens too much from here, it will not go unnoticed by the administration. I suspect that the rhetoric might ramp up a little bit. But meanwhile, um, I do think there's opportunity for better growth outside the U.S. Um, the U.S., we have been growing a little better, but that's already gotten discounted uh, in, in the dollar. And I don't think that's sustainable. So this dollar strength of late, um, it's exposed some trouble spots sure. within emerging yeah, markets, right? Sure. like Argentina, like Turkey. You could argue some of these markets maybe deserved a, a, a little bit of a shakeout, just given some of the fundamentals there. Um, the local currency emerging market index is actually about to post one of its worst quarters on record. Yet, as I look out the window, right, emerging markets seem to be in relatively healthy shape. Fundamentals, for the most part, are solid. This isn't 2013. It's not 2015. So what's mm. going on here? Yeah, so you're absolutely right because – and it's interesting that – you know, you have 2015, which was just a, a, you know, a few years ago, and then 2013, uh, the taper tantrum. And I think markets tend to have uh, short memories and, and you know, kind of thinking about, okay, hey, the Fed's tightening. Okay, we need to start selling EM. Yeah, you're right. This time, um, valuations are still compelling. But I would marry that with, uh, and you pointed out underlying economic fundamentals. So, okay, so I think 2017 was the rising tide lifts all boats, sort of in EM. That's not going to be the case. Uh, the markets have to discriminate. Other countries, in terms of the EM universe, 
they have actually better compelling economic fundamentals. Current account deficits have improving. Inflation remains tame. It might uptick a little bit with some of the weakness in the currencies, but we don't think that's the start of new trends. And again, I'd look to China because China is the most important sort of country to look at in terms of analyzing any particular emerging market because China has such a huge footprint. Uh, it's one of our pillars that we've talked about, um, about you know why we like EM. A stable, prospering uh, China is one of those um, stable commodity prices. Uh, what's been a little bit interesting this cycle, yeah, the U.S. dollars rallied, but commodity prices haven't really sold off to the degree that they would have in other cycles. Well, that tells me that global growth is still on solid footing. Demand for commodities is still robust. Um, I think when we work through this, and ultimately we're viewing what's going on in the emerging markets as creating an opportunity because there's a big disconnect. We think the markets have gotten uh, too negative. And again, part of this is that when you hit these risk-off environment, liquidity tends to seize up and it exas uh, exacerbates the price action. At some point, there will be a catalyst for the emerging markets to settle down. I think that catalyst is going to come about with maybe the Fed sort of telling us that they're going to, you know, maybe, I don't want to say backpedal, that's too strong, but just sort of kind of pause a little bit when we get a little bit closer to neutral rate. So you mentioned China. Right. And let's pivot for a second, talk maybe a little bit more about trade. And as you look around the world and you think about just the trillions of dollars of merchandise trade um, globally, even if we include the latest proposed tariffs by Trump, um, the overall value of goods being affected by these tariffs, it, it's relatively small. So are people overreacting to tariff concerns? Or, you know, what's going mm -hmm. on here? Yeah, so it's obviously the issue with tariffs is not where we are today. If I could kind of wave a magic wand and say, okay, hey, the tariffs have been proposed, that's it done, we're moving forward, uh, we'd have a huge re relief rally in risk assets. Well, that, that's that's not realistic because the issue with tariffs uh, and underlying this trade tension is what's the next step? You know, where are we going to sort of unfold? I mean, this is the, the best case scenario would be, and I'm going to focus on China because that U.S.-China trading relationship is the most important as opposed to U.S.-Europe. I mean, it's important, but in terms of setting the overall tone for um risk off or risk on. It's sort of U.S.-China. Ideally, we're going to um, get to a point where both sides agree, but you have to drill down a little bit because I think when you look at the U.S. side of things, you've got some uh, characters in play. So the globalists, I think, are Kudlow and Mnuchin. Obviously, with Kudlow's health issues, he's been quiet. Mnuchin has been pretty quiet. Um, I think at some point he should sort of become a little bit more vocal and, and kind of talk about the the negative things associated with uh, uh, trade tariffs and certainly if we go down a trade war. So that leaves Navarro, Lighthouser, and to a lesser degree, Ross kind of driving the show uh, in here. Um, as long as that's the case, yeah, we'll, we'll probably be a little bit still skewed towards uh, risk off. But our view is that these guys, ultimately, this is part of the negotiating process. And at the end of the day, that we're going to not go into a trade war because that's not going to help. Uh, anybody. I mean, Trump likes uh, a strong U.S. economy, likes a strong equity market. Uh, he, he wants a, a smaller trade deficit in the U.S. Well, what's the solution to a lot of that is a weaker dollar. He can't have it all uh, from that standpoint. So in some ways, I think this is still the political posturing un unfolding. Um, you know, it's interesting. Look at Chinese equities. They were, they're down 13 percent. Maybe China is going to start to blink here 
uh, and maybe even sort of, um, you know, kind of not necessarily fire another shot across the, the bow in terms of threatening to raise more trade tariffs. So, Jack, we've talked about the U.S., we've talked about the dollar, emerging markets, uh, China. We haven't spent any time on Europe, and I want to give a, you know, devote a quick minute to what's going on in Europe. And a lot of attention lately, lately has been focused on Italy, and deservedly so. Um, but in my mind, that's something of a, of a known unknown at this point. So I want to ask you something about that, that, that's not getting enough attention, and that's Germany and Angela Merkel. And Merkel right now, people don't realize she's fighting for her political career. Um, so, Jack, what are the chances she loses her job, and what's that mean for Europe's outlook? Yeah, I think it's it's potentially very important. So, yeah, you're right. Italy is the poster child. Too much debt, not enough growth. I can understand the stress uh, associated with, with Italy. Germany is unique because fiscally they're, they're on very, very solid footing. Um, and and growth-wise, they're, they're doing well. Um, I, it, to me, it's another example of the shift towards populism. You know, it's Brexit. It was Trump. Uh, now Merkel's kind of getting swept up in it uh, as well. So it does have huge implications for the the eurozone experiment. Uh, is how I would kind of classify it. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, okay. So we've got the one monetary policy, the ECB. We've got one currency. What's been missing is sort of the the one fiscal union. Um, and Merkel was a kind of advocate of that, as is Macron. With Merkel out of the picture, I don't think Macron is strong enough to, to move the Eurozone forward towards getting that fiscal unity. And, you know, without that, the, the prospects of the Euro trading up to whatever the number is, 140, 150, uh, are diminished significantly. Uh, it means that the Euro probably is structurally is going to be on the, the weaker side of things. And again, in lining up with our portfolio, we are underweight, the euro and European currencies in general. All right. Well, thanks, Jack. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Please don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions.